Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Co. Evening. Hey. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. How are you? I'm doing great. This podcast is intended to answer questions from you, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, Wesley Willard, John Nelson, Brian Paul, and Jean Carlios. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Also, make sure to stick around to the end to hear who we think are inspirational woodworkers to follow on social media. So let's get right into it. Guy, what's your first question? Oh, I'm 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 the first question. You ask this every time. <laughs> you he asks it every I time. Never, I, 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 I don't know who's the first. I, I never know I'm going to be first. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be first. I thought Sean was going to be first. No, no. Let me let me find the first. Okay, so this is from Matt in Alabama. I guess he lives like close to you, Hui. Uh, you know everybody in Alabama, right? Absolutely, because there are only there are only about twenty people here within <laughs> yeah. a, a two hour. Drive anyways, he knows everybody. <laughs> yeah. So Matt's asking, he says, I've recently been looking into moisture meters and found the good ones seem to be $300 and up. I want to ask you if you three use a moisture meter. If so, what do you use and recommend? And uh, he says, thanks for the, the great info and how much he loves the podcast and how awesome I am and I should <laughs> get rid of the dead weight. So anyways... <laughs> But he doesn't um, say the dead weight. No, I'm just joking. That's good. No, I'm just joking. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't have it. I have a moisture meter. It was like, and I don't know the brand on it. I, I pulled it out and looked at it. It doesn't have a brand name on it. <laughs> I bought it on Amazon oh, probably like two years ago. It's a pinless one. It was like 40 or $50. It's very cheap. And... It came with a little uh, instruction manual uh, written by somebody that doesn't know English very well. <laughs> but it has a chart in there, so it gives you the specific density of different woods, which you have to know, because mm -hmm. there's a setting in there that you know you have to put in there for like ash or maple or cherry or whatever you have. And once you put that in there, you put the temperature in, which is also relevant to how these things work. You put the temperature in, actually it, it senses the temperature. You have to just calibrate it. And once you do that, I really don't care what the measurement is. I know that sounds weird, but what I do is I take it over to a piece of wood of the same species I've had in the shop for a while. Uh, let's say I've just picked up a bunch of cherry from a local sawyer. I've got some cherry that's been in my rack that maybe like, two or three years it's been sitting there and I take a measurement on that piece of cherry first and let's say it's you know eight percent then I go over to the, the the new piece of what I just bought and I take a measurement of that so I, I use the wood I have as the uh, the benchmark yep and whatever the number is it, it could be 50 and I really don't care but I'm just taking that I'm going to the other piece of wood and I'm I'm doing it that way. So I don't know what you guys do. Hui? I do something that's very similar. I have actually a, a relatively expensive 
uh, moisture meter, but that's because I bought it used from a gentleman, a senior that was no longer woodworking anymore. And he sold it to me for very, very cheap comparatively to what it actually retails for. So it, it's called a Delmhorst J2000. It is a pinned digital moisture meter, but it, it uses exactly the same concept of density of wood, species of wood, the temperature, those things are all taken into consideration. But even though this is a, a more accurate moisture meter, I don't know how accurate it is. All I know is what it is relative to what's in my shop. And I do the yeah. exact same thing that you're doing. Even if I knew it was spot on, I'd still do the same because it's not just necessarily about what the moisture content of the wood is. It's about what equilibrium is in your shop. That's more important than I think actually what the number is, because that's where you're going to be doing all your joinery. That's where all your, you're going to be doing all your milling and everything. So yeah, I, I said benchmark before I, I, I should have said the baseline. Right. I think it's the right. correct term baseline. Yeah. 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 But I'm doing the same thing, even though I have a more expensive, I, I I'm guessing it might be more expensive. I don't know, but it's, it it's probably pre- more than $40 new. Yeah, I'm looking at it here. It's 360 new. I did not pay that. <laughs> I think I paid a hundred bucks for it. Actually, no, I, I remember I did pay a hundred bucks for it. But I got a whole bunch of stuff from this gentleman that was in uh, that was in Rome, Georgia, and he was just you know liquidating his shop. And so I just went there, and he gave me a deal on a lot of stuff. And I saw that, and I was like, I would like that. He gave it to me for a good price, and one that I couldn't refuse. So I, I picked it up. But Sean, I, th- I imagine you're probably doing the same thing. Or do you even use a moisture meter? Or I have a moisture meter. It's a cheaper general tools uh, pen type. It was about 40 bucks. I very rarely use it because I get my, my lumber from the same source, the same sawmill. I know his operation and I, I trust you know what he does. But oftentimes if I do get some, uh, some wood from a different source, I will do exactly what you guys said compare it. When I first get it in, I'll check the moisture, compare it to the other lumber in my rack, uh, let it set for a few weeks, check it again to see how much it's come down and, and just, and just go based off of the same exact method that you guys said. So while, while you were talking there, uh, while you guys were talking, I went into my Amazon order mm-hmm. history yep. and I found it. It's a pinless wood moisture meter. It's by Dr. Meter. It's a model, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a model MD918. And right now it's $50 on Amazon. Yeah. So that's what I have. That's yeah. exactly what I'm sitting on is my, I bought mine in January 3rd, 2012 for $33 or something. Mm. I've actually had mine for four years. So that's that's our methods, anyways. Um, I know there's a couple people that, that I watch on YouTube and follow on Instagram that are really into the whole. You know, they 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 do a lot of their own uh, wood sawing. They're, they're sawyers, and they really depend on their moisture meters, and they've got pretty expensive ones. For me, I really don't see the I really don't see the need for it because I'm not drawing my own lumber. If I was drawing my own lumber, I think I would have a better one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't. Yeah, yeah. And if I buy stuff from the my hardwood supplier, I never check it. It's it's a reliable source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if I went experimenting on Craigslist, I would definitely check it. But oh, for sure. Yeah, that's the only time that I that I tend to check is when I get 
get crazy and go lumber buying on Craigslist from from the random person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we've kind of nailed that one down. Uh, Sean, you would have the next question. All right. This one's from Ray. Uh, love your work. Quick question for you. How flat is your outfeed slash assembly table? I just made a four foot by six foot torsion box top for my outfeed slash assembly table to maximize shop space. It didn't come out as planned. It's off as much as a 64th in some places. Not sure what happened. It seems to be flat along the length, according to my Veritas straight edge. But for some reason, not across. It seems to be about six inch strip along one long side that is about a 64th lower than the rest of the table. Ray, first off, maybe I'm off my rocker, but I would not be worried about a 64th in my assembly table. Uh, just, just for, I'll start by saying that. I know Ray's probably not concerned. He's just confused as, as to probably why it happened. Uh, but I've assembled furniture on tabletops that were just simply sheets of MDF without any issue. Um, but if I were going to start troubleshooting his issue, I'd probably start with the framing that makes up the grid. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's dipping along one side, I'm going to guess that the outer strip may be cut a 64th narrower than the rest of the grid, or maybe the bottom sheet of the sandwich wasn't flat to begin with because you need to start uh, with the, with flat sheets and, and the grid work needs to all be the same exact width to begin with. It, you know, it's important to start the assembly of the torsion box top with a flat surface. When I made mine, uh, I jointed two by fours and shimmed them uh, sitting on top of the cabinet base to give me a dead, perfectly dead flat surface to then build the torsion box top on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray, if the top is sitting on the grid and it's not yet attached, pull it off and then measure the grid pieces on the sides that dip. Uh, you can always shim it to bring that top, uh, the top sheet back into flat. But you know, my money is is on the base in which the, you built the top on isn't dead flat to begin with. Right. Um, that's a couple different places to check. But at the end of the day, uh, shim it up under the top layer to bring it in, or just you know not worry about it. But I would. It's going to either be the grid, or you didn't. You know, the bottom sheet isn't flat, or make sure the top sheet is flat. And that's probably where I would start if it's along that one side. It, it's you've got some place to start looking. I guess that doesn't leave hardly anything else uh, to really look at. Can you guys add to that? Well, yeah, the, I have a torsion box uh, assembly table too. When I built it, I was really looking for about 10 one thousandths of an inch. I don't know what that relates to. And, you know, if it's a 64th or a 128th or whatever the hell it is, I don't know. My main goal with it is to, to get it relatively flat but I was really more concerned about twist. There's nothing worse than making a door and you think it's you know, everything's flat. Then you put it in the box that you've made or whatever, the, the cabinet that you've made, and it doesn't sit flat inside that cabinet because it's twisted. So if you're only a 64th inch off, I wouldn't worry about that. Try to find a space or a, a spot on the, the top that you know is dead flat and use that one area, I guess, for, you know, really important things like doors. You know, I, I guess that's about it, but I, I would check it for twist also. I just use winding sticks, which is a couple pieces of plywood. I put some blue tape on one of them and stuck it out there. What Sean's saying about the base is absolutely correct. When I, when I built mine and I attached it to the base, you know, it wasn't that the base was off, is that my floor is twisted. So when I loaded the thing up, I've got a, mine is 
not huge. It's maybe like six by three or yeah, about six by three, I think. It's not as big as yours is. When I put the the, the base on the floor where I was going to put it and put all the weight into it, the, the whole base actually twisted. So when I put the top on it, I had to shim the hell out of the top. It was almost a half inch off hmm. on one side of the base. But I had to put shims in there before I secured it. So take a look at that too. Do you have anything to add, Wee? Not much. You make furniture and things are all flat on your assembly table. And then you bring it into the house and it doesn't sit flat at all because your floors are all... I have uh, like uh, hardwood oak floors and it is not flat at all. So any any piece of furniture that I bring in from the shop, then it's like, oh man, it's nice and flat. Everything's great. I bring it in the shop and it just rocks all over the place because my floors are just terrible. I, I just find it so so funny because we we worry so much about you know the flatness of our tools and our assembly tables specifically, which is very important, of course. But then we bring it into our house and it's like nothing sits flat at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just absolutely. find it so amusing. Thank God for carpet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and leg levelers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so Ray, hope that helps. Um, I wouldn't get too caught up on the 64th if your if your pieces are coming out flat and and all that that's that's all you can ask for really yeah, yeah. in my opinion but Hui, what do you have for us all right so this question is from bohan and he asks i hope to one day become a fine furniture maker myself so i am trying to learn more about the various styles for example shaker green and green arts and crafts danish mid-century modern etc I feel that I am starting to get a good idea on what defines these styles, but if you can provide any additional info on it, that would be awesome. Specifically, one thing I struggle with is how wood selection relates to the different styles. I've heard statements before like, I'm considering making the piece out of oak, but that would make it more of an arts and crafts style. And I am a little unclear on how a piece can change styles based on wood selection, even though the design is seemingly unchanged. Well, I think, Bohan, those are, those are more nuanced things that maybe people are talking about. So, for instance, oak is specifically uh, quarter sewn white oak is often seen in a lot of arts and crafts furniture, specifically made by Stickley. Uh, Another wood that is sort of uh, synonymous with shaker furniture is going to be cherry or pine, for instance, like a a pine blanket chest. The Green Brothers, green and green furniture, used a lot of mahogany, or uh, sometimes they even used teak. And I believe they used walnut in some pieces as well. And then a lot of their plugs, all their plugs are ebony, burnished ebony or polished ebony. So uh, I think those are uh, folks that are trying to be more uh, critical and true to the form and maybe even trying to make some reproductions. That being said, I've actually never, I've made a couple of green and green pieces and I've never used mahogany. And the reason is because, well, it's one, very expensive, and it's two, two it's hard to get here. Um, there are just very few places around where I am that, that actually offer it. So any place that, that I'm able to get it is going to charge a lot for it, and I have to get it shipped to me. So I think the more important thing is, is looking at the form or, uh, or the overall ratios of like thicknesses or, or aspect ratios on the piece than it would be to uh, maybe only consider the, the wood. I, I think it is important to to look at those and understand 
uh, particularly why those things were were used. So, for instance, the, the reddish brownish hue of green and green furniture is coming from you know the mahogany wood that's being used, and then on top of that, the type of finish that's being used too. And those are very nuanced and very specific to uh, the green and green style or arts and crafts furniture using either an anal. I can't say aniline dye. Is that correct? Am I saying that right? Yeah. An aniline dye or uh, ammonia fuming for arts and crafts furniture, which again, you get that effect from the ammonia fuming from using quarter sawn white oak and the tannins within the oak is reacting to that to that fuming. So yeah, I think we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but I mean, a really good example of where things can go wrong. I, I may, mm-hmm. I've made this comment a couple of times before. Shaker furniture is very easy to make, but it's mm-hmm. also very easy to get wrong. Right. <clears throat> Here's a good example of why you wouldn't want to use a certain type of wood with shaker furniture. So you're building this uh, side table, you know, a classic shaker side table, uh, just a top four tapered legs, an apron and a drawer. And in cherry, if the grain is, if the wood is picked out correctly, it's beautiful. It's simple. It's elegant. Mm-hmm. If you took that same piece and made it out of quarter sawn white oak, it would be a mess. That's what it would look like. It would look like somebody barfed on your table. The amount of figure in quarter sawn white oak, white oak with all the, the medullary reflex and everything yeah. would really take away from the simplistic style that makes that shaker piece a shaker piece. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even make it arts and crafts. It just makes it look bad. Right. So the 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 wood selection you use, and it, and it's really boils down to a preconceived idea that we all have of what a piece should look like. You know, green and green. It should be like a dark red, reddish brown with black accents, yep. because that's what our preconceived notion of it is. So if you made that same piece and made it again out of something like, you know, quarter sawn white oak, you'd go, ah, because our eyes just aren't used to seeing it. And it's right. just so, so radically different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a completely different animal from what we're used to seeing. So, yeah, I, I really think that the, the wood selection does have a lot to do with the different styles. Yeah, I completely agree. I I don't think there's much that I can add to this other than when you're planning a project, if you're choosing a specific style, just think about exactly what Guy said. Um, Just think about how the figure of the lumber is going to make it look and look at examples that are already out there. We have the history of the internet (laughs) to look at examples to find what works, what doesn't, what pleases the eye and -hmm. what throws it off. So I, I completely agree with with what actually both you and Hui were saying, and especially Hui on on the different styles and of the of the the finish really changed the appearance. And you know you can start with one type of lumber, but make it look like something else with depending on the finish that you go with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good question. He has more, and and we'll, I think we'll save that for a later date. But it, it does kind of still relate to that whole design and uh, wood selection, things like that. And we'll, we'll say that for a later date because it, he has a lot of questions. So, And this is something very difficult, by the way, to in my eyes, to, for me to figure out is what wood, what finish. So you've got, just take your time and, and learn it. <laughs> it's going to take you a while. All right, Guy, I think we're back to you. Oh, okay. This question is from Ian. 
he has a question regarding table saws. <clears throat> Since I still haven't been able to convince my wife to let me buy a used Felder KF700, <laughs> uh, what are your other thoughts on sliding table saws? I know you all have convention and cabinet saws. I'm considering getting the Grizzly G0623X as an upgrade to my rigid 4512. I've also looked at other table saws, such as the Sawstop and the Powermatic PM2000. However, with the traditional cabinet saw, I'd also be considering getting the Micra Incra Miter 5000, which is a crosscut sled. With that, the cost ends up being more than the Grizzly. And he's interesting in hearing our thoughts on such options. I looked up this table saw, and the Grizzly G0623X is a sliding table saw. And what it looks like Grizzly has done with this is they've taken a regular cabinet saw, uh, a cabinet-style table saw, and turned it into a slider. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with the slider, what, what it is is to the left of the blade, instead of having a table there, there's actually a sliding piece that goes along it. <clears throat> and it goes a certain distance that's called the throw of the of the table. Then you also have a crosscut arm. You see sliding table saws in a lot of production shops where they're doing a lot with plywood. Um, because you can just put a sheet of plywood on there and chop it all up very accurately. And they take up, you don't see a lot of, of hobbyists using them. And when, when I talk hobbyists, I'm talking like most of, or 99.9% of the people on YouTube and social media. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the, in the United States is using a cabinet saw because mostly they don't have the room for a big slider. Even though this Grizzly sliding saw is not that big, it requires a huge footprint to use. So you've got, you know, you've got like eight feet across, maybe six or seven feet in front of and behind the saw. And that's not even counting, you know, that's just the saw. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's yeah. really big. If you've got the room for it, great. It looks like a nice saw. I've always liked Grizzly stuff. I always thought it was pretty decent quality at a very reasonable price. And I don't think you can go wrong with it. It's just a matter of what your needs are for what you're making and if your shop can handle the size of it. Yeah, I imagine if he's doing a lot of cabinets, I mean, a lot of cabinets, it probably would make sense. But if if you're doing more smaller furniture pieces, I, I sort of wonder if that's necessary or if he would be better off maybe with a different machine uh i'm sorry an additional machine that that could take up that space right so the the footprint is huge on this yeah you know maybe a shaper or something i don't know if he's got the space my goodness i imagine if he's considering it he's got to have the space yeah but it all really boils down to what you're making too yeah yeah, I mean, there's times I wish I had. I, I was at a, a shop recently where they had a um, an Altendorf saw mm. with a ten foot throw on it. Oh my this was a sixty thousand dollar saw. It was beautiful. Yeah, but it's like it would take up my entire shop, and mm. I'd never use it to its full capacity. Right. So it does. It just doesn't make sense for a guy like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. They look cool. It would be, probably be neat to have, but let's talk about 
how that would change your workflow having one of these versus a traditional cabinet saw? Like would any of these, and would anything get in the way? Would you have to change your workflow? Uh, I mean, I've never had one of these, so I don't know if that changes, if that's going to change your, your workflow. Cause he's coming from uh, just a standard uh, cabinets or he's coming from a rigid R5 R4512 to this. My goodness. And he may have experience with the sliding table saw, but yeah. I'm just curious how that's how that would change your workflow going from a cabinet yeah, saw or something the, like this. The rigid 4512 is not a big European sliding saw. No. no. <laughs> yeah. Huge jump. Huge jump. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a completely well, it's not just an upgrade on the saw, it's a different animal completely. Right. Yeah. Those slide those big sliding table saws are really made for people that are doing a lot of work with cabinets, as mm-hmm. in plywood cabinets or um, you know, some type of man-made material, uh MDF or whatever. So, but I know you can get the saw I know Sawstop has a sliding table. Right. that you can put on there and I know people that have them and some of them like them, some of them don't. Yeah. You know, yeah. There so. are two versions too. From what I've heard is that one version and they might have changed this. This was like maybe two years ago when I was three years ago when I was actually considering getting the sliding attachment is the problem is that taking it off. I think it was an issue getting it recalibrated, putting it back on. So if you wanted to do a, a, a rip cut using the traditional fence, the Beesmeyer fence, uh, you take it off, you know, because you only had so much space left to the blade before your ripped cut or your off cut would actually start hitting the uh, the slider, uh, the the fence on the slider. Oh yeah, well, I also heard that the original ones didn't have positive stops at ninety. That's right. I, th- I yeah. think they what? do now. I think, I think they-, they might they might now, but I know a guy that had one and he was all bummed out because he got it. I was like, man, this thing doesn't have a positive stop for ninety. Like really, really? It was yeah, really that was, weird. That was one of the things. Are you talking about Steve Lied? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he's the one that he's he's chatted with me about that before. Where he he had to come up with a contraption to, to zero it back out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he seems to really like it. But yeah. I, honestly, yeah. I don't have enough experience. I've never even used a sliding table saw to tell you if I would want one. They seem cool, but I don't know how that would change my my workflow. And I definitely don't have the room for it. Yeah. yeah, and if budget if budget is an issue, and you know, saw stop is a great saw, but if, and the the power mac is a great saw. I know because I have one, and I've used saw stops before, which are really high quality saws. If, if if it's if it's a budget issue, and you're not, it doesn't sound like Ian is like 100 sold. I got to have a saw stop because I'm concerned about cutting my hand off because hmm. <clears throat> he's considering the Grizzly the power mac also. Mm-hmm. Grizzly makes some really nice table saws that are fairly inexpensive. Right. Um, they make Absolutely. one. I, I don't know what the model number is, but it's the older model. And they've been making it for you know 20 years. And um, it's fairly inexpensive. It's, it's under $2,000. So you take that. And you can, you know, get the Anchor Miter 5000, which I have, which is a, a great crosscut sled. And if you're breaking down a lot of uh, plywood, track saw, baby. Yeah. I will say, if I had to choose between the two, uh, if I was going to get a, a legit traditional, this Grizzly sliding table saw versus spending more for a, a saw stop plus their attachment, 
there's no, I mean, it's a no brainer to me. I would go with this Grizzly because it's a traditional sliding table saw. It comes with things like your scoring blade and it's it's an actual sliding table saw and it's going to be less money. Yeah. Yeah. Guy, just for our listener, just so he can uh, look into this, the I think I believe the saw you're talking about is a G1023RLX, RLWX. Yeah, yeah, is that the right? 1023. 1023. Yeah. It's 1625. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I almost bought that instead of my Powermatic. Yeah. It's a, they've been making that thing forever. It's a beast of a saw. So, Guy, I know you you recently broke down a whole ton of plywood for your cabinets. And I know, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, I want to talk to you about this because I'm, I'm going to have to do the same thing some, sometime soon. Uh, so, you, you obviously clean up one edge, is that correct? The long edge, and then you square it up on, uh, on the other edge, and then you're cutting all of your parts out with the track saw, right? Correct. I broke down a complete kitchen. And the parts from, I think, 10 sheets of plywood. Now, this mm-hmm. doesn't count the backs or anything like that, but just the the ca- just the the uppers and lower boxes, I did it in less than a day. Yeah. I was almost done with it by lunch. So I had four, I was four hours into it. And right. I spent a couple hours after lunch and I got a, I got everything all cut up. So I got to ask you about your workflow because that's something I'm really concerned about. So did you, you, you cut, you broke everything down on your, on your assembly table, correct? With a, I guess a, a foam. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you had a pile over there. And so basically you're just moving from one pile and placing it on top and then moving that out of the way. Yeah. The, the, the thing that a lot of people get really concerned about, especially, you know, in a hot, a, 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 a non-professional guy is they want to break down the sheets. So there's the least amount of waste. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different programs out there that allow you like a, a max cut. And uh, what's the other one I use cut list that make things more complicated in this situation. If you've got one sheet of plywood, you're breaking down. Mm-hmm. That's, that's cool to be able to maximize your yield out of the piece of plywood. If you're building a whole kitchen, screw it. Just <laughs> cut all the, I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. Rip all the stuff, rip all the sheets down. It doesn't matter. You're going to, and you're going to have waste. I threw a lot of stuff out and buy an extra sheet because you're never going to have enough. Just efficiency wise, I didn't really concern myself that much with maximizing my sheet good use. I just, started ripping it. I know I needed a bunch of pieces that were 610 millimeters wide, which is 24 inches. So I set my uh, parallel guides and I cut down as much as I needed to make all my stuff. And then I had pieces left over. It's like, okay. So I take this and I'm like, okay, I can get these pieces out of here. And I started cutting those down. Mm -hmm. And that's how it worked for me. I was concerned about maximizing my yield i was more concerned about efficiency cutting it and that helped quite a bit well i just i thought that would be one insightful for me but also maybe possibly insightful for uh ian Ian. yes thank you so i'd go with the the, uh, sliding table saw (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah all right sean i think you've got the next question 
All right, this is from John. Hey guys, really enjoying the podcast. Makes my commutes far more enjoyable. My question for you is regarding resawing. I currently get by with an assortment of hand tools, a DeWalt table saw with a stand that folds up on the end, and a DeWalt thickness planer. While I would love to add a nice 14-inch bandsaw to the arsenal, I simply do not have the shop space at the moment in time. I'm about to start making my wife a jewelry box using walnut for the sides and would like to incorporate a bookmatched maple top. I haven't worked out the dimensions yet, but I would likely shoot for a panel size in the ballpark of 12 by 10 by a quarter inch. As I see it, my options are to resaw by hand using a 22-inch panel rip saw, a 10-inch bandsaw like the Rikon 10306, parentheses, also need to purchase, would not take up too much valuable shop space, and would get me by until my shop space situation improves, which could be a while. Or take a 20-minute drive to my buddy's house to use his bandsaw. The major concern I have about using his bandsaw is running the risk of the resawing boards cupping due to the environmental differences between our shops. The order of preferences are using my buddy's bandsaw first, followed by resawing by hand, and then buying the 10-inch bandsaw. Your advice is greatly appreciated. Thanks. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about is the bandsaw that you uh, picked, the Rikon. I looked it up, and it appears to only have a cut capacity of about four and five-eighths of an inch. So I'm not sure that saw is going to work for this situation unless you're wanting to do a glue up to get to the desired width. And if that's something you don't mind doing, then you can resaw smaller pieces on the table saw. I mean, that's always an option. I'm not a fan of resawing on the table saw, uh, but it, I figured I would mention it because that that is an option if you're going to be cutting boards that narrow anyways. Um, if it were me, I'd probably just take the drive to your buddy's house and borrow his bandsaw. And if you're concerned about the board cupping, just leave it a little thick. And then after a couple of days, when you're back at your house, just make a sled for your planer and flatten it out and take it down to the final size. Uh, If the board isn't going to be staying at your buddy's house anyways, the environmental differences shouldn't be a concern. Uh, And if the board's going to cup, it's going to cup no matter where you resaw it. Uh, So, and yeah, it's going to cup. It's going to cup right off the saw. Yeah. So your, your other option, like you mentioned, is to buy a rip panel saw and go to town on that. Uh, The handsaw won't, take up hardly any space, but it's going to take a, <laughs> quite a bit of effort if you're wanting to just resaw <laughs> by hand. Uh, so my vote is go to your buddy's house and then um, use a rip saw or just use your table saw and do some edge gluing to get to the final size and then run it through the planer and that'll remove any glue joints and take it down to the correct thickness. Uh, but that's what my thought process is. Uh, Guy, what do you think? I would agree with that. I think you could... If you didn't want to drive to your buddy's house and you're, you're concerned about the environmental differences, like you said, Sean, I, 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 you could still use a table saw, get, you know, pretty darn close. Yeah. It's where you have to read, you know, I don't know what the cutting depth of this, the wall table saw he has. I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with that model number. It sounds like it's a, a job site saw. So if that's the case, it, uh, again, I don't know what the, the depth of cut is, but you can cut it, flip it, cut it, and just have a little piece left in the center that you can cut with your handsaw. Yep. So you don't have to cut the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I have one of those Rikon 10 inch bandsaws as my second bandsaw I cut curves on. I don't know what the depth is, but I wouldn't be resawing on that thing. Mm. The, I, I just don't, I wouldn't have much faith in it uh, for, for, that type of work. I don't think the motor is uh, more than like a, a quarter or a half horsepower anyways as well. So that would be a struggle. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I, I actually, a friend of mine, Mike Fulton gave it to me when he got a new bandsaw. It was free, which is kind of cool. 
Uh, thank you, Mike. You're awesome. <laughs> and uh, I use it just to cut curves with. But anyways, getting back to the subject. Now I'm getting off into the weeds. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm with Sean. I would go to your buddy's house that has it, and it would save a lot of a lot of BS just to go do it there. Yeah, yeah. I say hand plane it down to thickness. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys, that, you guys, <laughs> you guys covered it. You know, but that that's a good idea, though. Uh, guy is getting one of those uh, Japanese uh, handsaws. Man, those cut pretty fast. I guess is it uh, is it called a razor saw? What is it called, Sean? Do you do you remember? Uh, I, I do not, unfortunately. Rayaba uh, or something like that. Anyway, Rayo Ra- 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 yeah. something. Yeah, something. Yeah, I can't knows. remember. I but, just call uh, it Bolt Kazuki, yeah. Kawasaki. <laughs> but it's one I of those. Careful, I gotta be careful because I'm gonna offend somebody. <laughs> yeah. so sensitive nowadays. Well, I guess I I was the one that first in charge because I couldn't even I don't even know the name of it. But I mean, they're they're relatively inexpensive, and if you if you don't you know want to go through the trouble of driving 20 minutes, I mean those cut pretty fast and you can do it on your table saw. And I, I think if you're, you're careful enough, I, I don't think it'll be a problem. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, I think I got the last question here and this is from tank. <laughs> it's spelled T A N C. Uh, so I don't know if that's tonk or anyway. Tank. 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 tank is much cooler. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be I a like cool it. name. Yeah. I like tank. it. So uh, I've been woodworking for two years and I try to tackle new skills on each project. I love learning and love pumping out new pieces. My focus has been on the design and build phase. One area I can't seem to care about is joinery. Is there anything wrong with dowel construction? I find the dowel max gives me piston fit joints that are easy, quick, and dead square. But sometimes I feel like a hack for not doing more complicated work. The tests I've seen show that the dowels, when used properly, are equally as strong as mortise and tenon and stronger than dominoes. Am I missing out? Can one still build fine furniture without mortise and tenons? Or should I man up and pull out the chisels? Tank. Man, I I think you're fine. I think you're fine. If you want to use dowel joinery and continue to do dowel joinery, go at it. But... I think there's something to be said to, you know, try a new skill. Just like you said, it, it, you know, you focus on the build phase. So doing mortise and tenon, you know, you're only going to benefit yourself by learning something new. But, you know, there are times where, you know, I just want to pull out the domino and do something quick because I want to focus on another aspect that is maybe more complicated or something new that I haven't tried before. And I want to go through that joinery phase relatively fast. You know, it's all about what you want to do. And I, I don't think just because you're using dowels or a domino or, or whatever you choose to use, that, that because you're using those things doesn't make you a fine furniture. I think it pertains to the focus that you're putting on very specific aspects of the build that make it fine furniture. I don't know what you guys think about that, but please chime in if you want. Am, am I completely wrong about this or or do you have uh, other insights for Tank? I'll let God go first. No, I was going to let you go first. I was going to let you respond to we after me. I always seem to go second. So go ahead, Sean. All right. I see nothing wrong with it. If it works, it works. If it's strong, strong, sound joinery, cool. I would probably get tired of it after a while. That's the only thing that, that I can say. 
yeah. um, and I'd want to try something different. But I got to be honest, if with the limited shop time, I've been going for easier joinery recently. And I know it's this probably sounds dumb, but sliding dovetails is a pretty simple joint to make. It looks good. It's extremely strong. But, you know, I went for it because it's it's fast. I, I cut the latest um, half blind dovetails using the uh, the bandsaw for the dovetails and the half blind sockets. I used, a, you know, a router bit to hog away most of the material and a chisel. Um, you know, I'm about what what's going to be the fastest here recently because I've got very limited shop time. So if dowels are working, they're strong. I see nothing wrong with it other than just may get bored after a while. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with everything you guys have just said. And, and, and to add to that, let's say if you looked at a, a piece made by anybody that doesn't have exposed joinery, in other words, like through mortise and tenons or something like that, you don't know how the hell that thing is held together unless you ask the person that made it. Exactly. He's going to see it. You can't tell if it's dominoes, dolls, mortise and tenon. And to be really honest with you, that's another thing that people get really wrapped around the axle on, which is, mm-hmm. well, mortise and tenon is stronger than this. Are you going to be putting an elephant on top of your furniture? <laughs> I know I'm not. So I don't yeah. care if this has 400 pounds of sheer strength versus 150 pounds because it's never going to see 150 pounds. Who yeah. gives a flying rat's behind? It doesn't <laughs> matter. So it re- what it really boils down to for me anyways you know, it, it sounds like Tank is a hobbyist woodworker. He's not doing this for a living. Right. So you have to break it down to what gives you the enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Some people absolutely love taking a piece of wood, marking out their their mortise, cutting their mortise with chisels, sitting at the bench for you know hours, cutting their mortises, and then breaking on a handsaw carefully cutting their tenons, getting everything to fit really nicely. Mm-hmm. And that's what gives them enjoyment. And God bless you and more power <laughs> to you. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying it's a it's a different, you know, it's just like everybody has a worldview on other things. There's like a view on how you view woodworking. It's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what you have to look at, Tank. If that's what gives you enjoyment, that's fine. If it doesn't matter to you and you're used to shoot, you're looking for something that's strong. And dowels are extremely strong. There's nothing wrong with using dowels. No. And you just want to get the piece done. And you're more concerned about the design and how the piece looks other than sitting at your bench for hours, cutting all the stuff by hand. And the design and the construction phase of it, that's where you get your enjoyment. Again, God bless you. Do it that way. You know, there's nothing wrong with breaking out a domino and making a complete piece without, if you've got, you know, you've got this, get this thing built. Everybody's got different things they're trying to accomplish. Are you trying, the the end piece may all look the same. It may be done different ways, but in the end, it's how it looks as a finished project. Right. Yeah. There's one other important aspect that we're not really focusing on that I, well, at least I did when I went through my, my answer is he says he's only been woodworking for two years. Can Let's roll back the clock to when we were only woodworking for two years. There's so many things that you want to try to master all at once, but you just, it's it's overwhelming. Milling lumber, choosing lumber, choosing joinery, shaping pieces, glue ups, and this and that. You know, it is perfectly fine to do dowel joinery for the fir- for first X amount of years until you get down the basics of 
picking lumber, milling lumber, uh, design, sculpting, and this and that. Take your time. I mean, you've only been doing it for two years. You've got plenty of time to to figure all of this stuff out. It's probably a little overwhelming. At least it was for me. Uh, the last thing I wanted to worry about was, is this thing going to fall apart? If you're using dowels, um, the, the dowel max especially is a great jig. It's it's yeah. very flexible in what you can do with that. There's no reason to worry about that. You know, work on the things that you enjoy the most. And the dowel max is perfectly fine, like I was saying, way strong. That's a nice I, – I almost bought one of those once. Mm. And uh, I can't remember what stopped me. But anyways, you know, I've been using dowels for – years and sometimes it's just the way to go man it's it they're they're they are quick and easy yeah. and there's nothing wrong with using them and and yeah. as far as doing the design and 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 build part that that tank was talking about when you're cutting your lumber up it's kind of like cutting the lumber your parts for a domino you don't have to worry about having extra length for your your tenons right let's say it's just you know I know that the space between these two boards is 15 and three quarter inches. I cut it at 15, three quarter inches. Oh, wait a second. No, I'm going to use Morris and tenon joinery. Uh, it's too short now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Has that ever happened to you guys? Yes. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> guess what I use. You go, okay. <laughs> I guess, I guess I'm going to use my, I'm guess I'm going to use dolls now <laughs> yeah. or I'm going to break out my domino because I made a screw up. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I, I think it and and Sean made a very good point. I think it is important to learn the joinery, to learn how to do mortise and tenons, because there's going to be that time when again you're in that design and build phase, that design phase of your project tank, and it's like I want to do through tenons, through mortise and tenons. And if you don't know how to do mortise and tenons, you're going to be struggling with that. So, uh, learning how to do the different types of joinery is a good thing. Yeah. And get those skills down also and start, you know, you're saying it, you know, you want to incorporate some of this stuff into every new project, your next project, you know, ditch the dial max and do it mortise and tenon just to do it, just so you can have some experience doing it because mm-hmm. someday that's going to pay off. Yep. Well, that was a great question. Great discussion. And I believe that is our last question. So like I said earlier, we're going to be talking about uh, some inspirational woodworkers that we think you should be following on, on uh, social media. So, Sean, who do you have first? I have Nick from at Pedula Studio, P-E-D-U-L-L-A Studio. Nick is a designer slash furniture maker out of Sydney, Australia, and he is a fantastic designer. He has an eye for design. I absolutely love his modern approach and his eye for detail. A great example, which is one of my favorite, is his... Uh, one of many of, of my favorites of his work is the, the side table he's currently working on. He has a beautiful ingrain chevron pattern on the drawer fronts that just looks killer. The end tables already looked awesome, but the added chevron ingrain design just took it to another level. Uh, he does a good bit of inlay using other materials like brass, which when they're paired with walnut, just look pretty sweet. And of course, his designs often incorporate sculpted features. And I don't have enough time to fully explain why you need to follow Nick, but trust me, very inspirational feed. Give him a follow at Pedula Studio. Uh, Guy, who do you have for us? I don't have an individual woodworker. This is kind of a weird pick, but lately, in the last six months, these people have really, really stepped up their game as far as their Instagram feed. And that's the Mark Adams School of Woodworking. 
And that's mm-hmm. all one word, Mark Adams School of Woodworking. <laughs> um, obviously, it's a, a woodworking school. And they're here in Indiana. They're actually about a half hour, 40 minutes from my house. And um, everybody that's anybody that's a teacher comes through there and, and teaches people. Their feed lately, for, I said for the last maybe four or five months has been really good. They have the students working in the shop there. They have the instructors working alongside of them, some very big names. Mm-hmm. It's it's really cool to see these guys that are, you know, rock stars in the woodworking world working with normal, everyday Joes like, you know, us and walking them through how to make some really cool stuff. And it, I find it very inspirational. So I re- highly recommend giving them a follow. For sure. Lee? All right. I've got Burn Chandley at Burn Chandley Furniture. And he is out of Melbourne, Australia. And he makes Windsor-style chairs. So they're not the traditional Windsor, Windsor chair that you might have seen in the past. He, he sort of puts- They're Australian-style Windsor chairs? Yes. Um, they're, they're his own uh, unique <laughs> style. And um, I've been following him for a while, great at shaping, really beautiful chairs. He also teaches and he travels to teach as well. So uh, he's always got other people in his shop and he's always bringing along other people for the ride. And he's been posting a lot more regularly. I I love his work. I've I've been wanting to uh, make Windsor chairs. So just seeing what he does is is very inspirational for me. And, you know, if you're into, if you're into chairs and building chairs, I, I think you'll really like what he has to offer. So I think that wraps up this show. Uh, please remember this podcast is here to answer your questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com, or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, Guyswoodshop.com. Sean? I can be found at simplecove.com and at simplecove on YouTube and Instagram. I want to quickly say... Guys, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Let's see if we can get a few more of those reviews. Yeah. And we? Just uh, that ends our show. And uh, guys, thanks for joining me. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. See ya. See ya.